How lovely it is to see you all. <laughs> I start with a confession. Um, last week I sat here under Aline's preaching, as she said, and next week Jim will be speaking on this next passage, and I nodded my head, as did everyone else, and then I realized on Monday, oh, I'm preaching, <laughs> and so um, here we are. But I will do my best uh, to uh, pay homage to Jim uh, with, with the, yeah, smile, I need a smile, and um, you'll enjoy the title of this sermon when I give it to you. But basically, we're continuing our series in Luke today. Uh, last week, Aline took us through a passage um, in chapter 6, where uh, Jesus goes up to a secluded place to pray, and then he comes down and he performs some miraculous healings. And rather than keeping that way of life to himself as some kind of uh, mystery or secret, he then invites 12 apostles to come into apprenticeship under him to learn how to do what he was doing. And this church, as every other church, now exists on the back of that ministry. So we're going to jump straight in at uh, verse 20 of chapter 6. I'm going to read this because uh, it's quite a short passage. And it's going to be up on the screen. Uh, You can follow along. So then he looked up at his disciples and he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you will be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you, revile you, and defame you on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for surely your reward is great in heaven. For that is what their ancestors did to the prophets. But woe to you, who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you will be hungry. Woe to you who are laughing now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when all speak well of you, for that is what their ancestors did to the false prophets. I've decided to call this talk, Blessing or Woe, Living on a Prayer. I feel somewhat inadequate teaching this passage because it's among the teachings of Jesus that are uh, most well-known, most extensively discussed, most controversial, and potentially most misunderstood. And it's going to be incredibly difficult to uh, speak to all of the different ways that this passage has influenced such lively discussion and intense interest, but I shall do my best. And I'm going to start by trying to identify two extreme theological positions that have both made use of parts of this passage to defend themselves, and also the equivalent passage that's in Matthew, known as the Sermon on the Mount. You will have come across both of them if you've been knocking around the Christian world for uh, any length of time. On the one extreme is an idea known as the prosperity gospel. 
And on the other extreme is what might be known as the poverty gospel. Let me describe these to you. The, the prosperity gospel or prosperity theology is the idea that things like health and wealth and success and popularity are clear indications of God's favor and approval of who you are and what you're doing. And there are in this world some extremely wealthy preachers who have uh, become more wealthy by uh, preaching and writing about such an idea. These are the name it and claim it people. And the flip side of this idea is that if you are poor or sick or unsuccessful or unpopular, these are equal and equally clear indications of the opposite of God's blessing and uh, approval. In other words, they are God's judgment upon you. Now, when I describe it like that, it probably sounds stupid to you. The reason for that is it's stupid. <laughs> but it does find a way into church pulpits and into our lives in considerably more subtle ways. For example, just a couple of weeks ago, we gave a financial report um, uh, on how we're doing as a church, how we're doing as a charity, and we celebrated the fact that this church is not having to tighten its belt right now due to um, any kind of um, financial deprivation. And it's very easy to call that kind of provision from God a blessing, and so it seems. But we need to be careful about what we're implying when we say that, because if we're not careful, the implication is that if we were to experience a financial downturn, that would also equally indicate that God has ceased to bless us, and that would be wrong. The point is that we need to seek God and not seek financial blessing. But let me move on to talk to you about the poverty gospel, which is unsurprisingly the reverse of the prosperity gospel. And advocates of this position will make a spiritual virtue of suffering and deprivation to the point of actually inviting and even provoking punishing circumstances upon themselves. Such people make martyrdom their mission. And there's a kind of romanticism about stories that come from places and people where there is great suffering on account of their faith. Because those people seem to know a supernatural joy that is so powerful that a simple equation is deduced that suffering and persecution are ways into holiness and spiritual blessing. And again, before we make a caricature of such people as only those who, who use whips as they pray or fast until their ribs are showing. Let's consider the prevailing model of pastoral ministry and Christianity in this country. I think there is still large expectation in British Christian culture that Christians, and especially professional Christians like me, we should be driving around in clapped-out cars and never fork out for anything more luxurious than a pack of custard creams. So this theology does have ways of subtly making its way into our minds and hearts, however easy it is to caricature them. So I ask, does today's passage support 
the prosperity position or the poverty position? Well, no. And yes, a bit, but mostly no. Why don't you stand and I'll pray. <laughs> Sorry. But you could argue both sides. From the prosperity position, you could say, look, God's blessing, it looks like those who are hungry being filled up and those who are weeping being made to laugh with joy. That's what God's blessing looks like. And so when we experience those things, that is us experiencing the blessing of God. But the poverty side, you could say, look, it's upon the poor and the hungry that God pronounces his blessing and favor and pronounces woe to those who are rich now, who are filled now. And so they're both right, and therefore, they're both wrong. My actual personal point of view, probably unsurprising to all of you, is that the truth is found somewhere in neither extreme of prosperity or poverty, but somewhere in the tension between both, but even that position comes under pressure here with this passage, because in the words of Jesus, it does seem as though ideas of prosperity and poverty do have clear and almost absolute spiritual values associated with them. And so my position experiences pressure, but that kind of pressure is one that I have become a little bit used to, and uh, it's the kind of pressure that comes when uh, something you read in the Bible pushes against the theological ideas you've already uh, given residence in your brain and your heart. And I have personally learned to love that kind of pressure uh, rather than feel threatened by it, but I don't expect everyone to love it. But I do want to invite you to notice it and not ignore it, because ignorance leads to ignorance. And the way I believe it is right to respond to this pressure is to go back to the text and attempt to allow it to speak for itself, rather than to force our preconceived notions onto it. And that's harder the more familiar we are with texts, but it's also ultimately I'm afraid, impossible, because we're always going to come with some prejudice or other. But let's at least choose to consider the possibility that the text may not say what we think it says, or what we've always been taught it says. It may have something to say that we've either never heard before, or which we have willfully or accidentally ignored. So let's turn to the text, and I'm going to focus on the first line of Jesus' sermon, because I think that a proper understanding of this line gives us a proper lens through which to view the rest of what he has to say. So this is uh, verse 20. If we could have verse 20 up on the screen, that would be great. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. In Matthew's version of this sermon, uh, there are slight differences to Luke's version. For one, there are no woes. He doesn't give woes to those who are rich. But in addition to that, this blessing 
upon the poor reads slightly differently. When you read it in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, it says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And I want us to think just a moment about the differences between Matthew's version and Luke's version and what we can learn from them. Again, there's this little bit of pressure that one feels. Hang on a minute, why are they different and what do they mean? If you've ever done any study on the Gospels or just read summaries of how each Gospel has its own distinctive character, you'll probably have come across the assessment that Luke's Gospel is much more concerned with social justice than the other Gospel writers. And it certainly appears that way at times, and this phrase is one of the most often cited examples of that because uh, it seemed as though in Luke, Jesus is concerned with the poor. Whereas in Matthew, Jesus is concerned with the poor in spirit. It seems as though he's taken uh, a concept which in Luke is about here and now economic deprivation and poverty. And he's spiritualized it. And he's made it something more esoteric and more rooted in um, the supernatural. But if you study the word which is translated poor, uh, which is in Greek, and by the way, you don't need to actually learn biblical Greek uh, to do a word study. Uh, there are web-based tools where you can just click a button and it will show you where the word that lies behind the English word repeat, is used in other places of the Bible. And so the word that is translated poor, when you look at it, how it's used elsewhere in the scriptures, you discover that actually it's invariably wider than a socioeconomic term. It can and is used to mean economic poverty, but it's also used extensively to mean spiritual poverty. For that reason, uh, the, the most authoritative uh, Greek dictionary, which we tend to use, we, we call it snappily bidag, um, it has these two definitions. First, being poor pertains to being economically disadvantaged. We get that. But also it says, being poor pertains to being thrust upon divine resources. And when you examine the word as it's used in the Greek version of the Psalms, for example, it's often used by David to describe his spiritual state as being in desperate need of God, despite his power and his wealth and his affluence. And because of this, I cannot agree with this idea that Matthew has changed a, world that, a word that describes worldly reality and made it spiritual. Instead, he's just brought out and emphasized one aspect of the word that was already there. But when we come back to Luke, it becomes clear that we, ha we have to read both meanings into the word. He's talking about real-life economic deprivation, and he's talking about something bigger than that. So if we ourselves are not experiencing economic deprivation, we don't have to, we, we're not permitted to stop listening to this sermon. We have to listen. We may yet be in this group that he's calling poor. So what about the word blessed? 
Well, in the parlance of um, ancient religions, blessings tend to mean the gift of fortunate and happy circumstances. And when we study the language of these Beatitudes carefully, we can see that Jesus isn't pronouncing some kind of weird reality where being poor and being hungry are somehow good things that we should be happy about. Because the blessing that comes to the poor is the inheritance of the kingdom. The blessing to the hungry is the satisfaction of feeling full. And so when God says you're blessed when you're poor and you're hungry, he's not saying they're blessed because they are poor and hungry. He's saying they are blessed because they will receive the inheritance of the kingdom. They are blessed because they will be filled, because those who weep will have tears wiped from their faces, as it says in the new creation, God himself will do. So it's not a thumbs up to poverty. It's not a policy of letting someone go hungry. When, someone, when Jesus says these things to someone, to, to his disciples, it comes right after he's come down from his time of prayer, and he has delivered people of all the afflictions that they're experiencing. And the healing is proof of the blessing that they cannot yet see. It's this small deposit of the kingdom that is near, but not yet fully present. If that were not true, then God saying, and Jesus saying, you're blessed, would be a bit like when people send thoughts and prayers. Just a few hours ago, I read on the news, there's another, another massacre. Somebody wielding a gun in Texas. And when people send thoughts and prayers, but then do nothing in their power to rid the world of the problem. Those thoughts and prayers are fairly empty. But when God says, blessed are you who are poor, blessed are you who are hungry, he's saying, I've got you. I've got your back. You may feel as though you've got nothing. You may feel as though you've been abandoned and you're on your own, but you are not. Take comfort because what you see in front of you is not the whole story. When Jesus says you're blessed, he's saying there's a spiritual reality that he sees that is perhaps invisible to you, that is deeper and wider than the story that the most immediate circumstances are able to tell. And the difference between his blessing and the thoughts and prayers is that he is trustworthy and he has demonstrated his Willingness and ability to heal the broken. So what does that mean for rich people? <laughs> what does that mean for people who aren't hungry? Are they the opposite of blessed? The opposites of blessings in the Old Testament tend to be curses, is Jesus saying that rich people are therefore cursed by God? Well, interestingly, Jesus doesn't use the language of curses here. 
he instead says, Woe, woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. But I don't get it, because receiving consolation sounds kind of nice. I don't want, I, 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 I want that. So what does woe mean? I think woe essentially means something like look out, or a more reserved British phrasing, perhaps, do be careful <laughs> while you stick that fork into the electrical socket. If I were to translate woe to a noise, I think it would go <laughs> It's not a pronouncement of penalty, it's a warning of great danger. And what is the danger? Well, it's obviously good to have money and food and laughter. Those things don't seem dangerous to me. But what Jesus seems to be saying is that because these things are good, we're in danger of accepting them in exchange for something that is better, longer-lasting, real. And if we do look to those things as our source of comfort and happiness, then we will have comfort and happiness. But when they waste away, and they will waste away, so too will our comfort and our happiness. There's a story in Genesis about Jacob and Esau, those who settle for the type of comfort and happiness that you can gain through worldly means will be like Esau, who trades his inheritance for a bowl of tasty soup. And so the argument underlying this sermon, it seems to me, goes a bit like this. The poor are blessed, not because of their poverty, but because they have no refuge or comfort but God. And God will give them secure refuge and everlasting comfort. The rich are in danger because the refuge and comfort they already have in their wealth potentially blinds them to their need for what is more real and eternal. They've opted for what is here and now, but what is temporary. The poor have no choice but to grab hold of what is not yet present. In their poverty, the poor have been thrust upon divine resources. And in their wealth, the rich potentially believe they have everything they need. I, th I think one of the... Um, one of the hardest things to talk about is how this preoccupation with worldly comforts is not just the domain of those who have them. It's quite possible to have nothing and still seek refuge in the things that Jesus is warning against here. Sometimes the experience of poverty and hunger and sorrow drives a person, and I know that none of us are immune to this, drives a person to seek solace in wealth and in worldly comforts, in various forms of self-medication. 
And so, like Jim preached a couple of weeks ago, it's not money that is the root of evil. It's the love of money that is the root of evil. And those in poverty are not immune to that love. There is something the Bible calls the spirit of the age that infects both rich and poor alike. And it's this love of money and desire for it. I think the warnings that Jesus is expressing towards those who have it is because they're at risk of falling into a further trap. They are doubly in danger because as refuge is sought within those resources, that in itself can contribute to the suffering of those who have none. And so I think the resolution to this not um, is perhaps best expressed in uh, Job, which uh, Matt Redman loved, uh, quoted in his great song, uh, Blessed Be the Name of the Lord, or something like that. That bridge that says, you give and take away. My heart will choose to say, blessed be your name. Whether God gives us worldly comforts, worldly resources with which to enjoy and seek comfort, or whether he takes them away, we cannot put our trust in these things. So I want to end by suggesting that this whole section of blessings and woes boils down to Jesus describing two simple groups of people. In the first group, there are those who are aware of their need for God. And in the second, there are those who have allowed the allure of worldly comfort to blind them for their need for God. And that is a danger that people fall into, whether they have these resources or not. And it's important to look at who Jesus is teaching in this scene. He's teaching his disciples, which is a group that's wider than the apostles, the 12 apostles. These are all people who are following Jesus, who are apprenticing themselves to him. And so they've already decided to accept the teaching, accept the instruction of Jesus. And so they've already become aware of their need for God. And so none of them stand very neatly in the category of people that Jesus is sending warnings out to. But none of us really ever sit very neatly in one category or another. And so as we move into a time of ministry in just a moment, I want to ask you, where are you? I think that God is calling people who are experiencing actual physical, economic poverty, hunger, mourning, or even mistreatment on account of being a Christian. I think people are uh, in that spot right now, and Jesus wants you to know he's got you. He's got your back. But I think there are other folk here who have really had their hopes dashed, whatever that means. You've 
you've looked for something, whether it's a new job or, or, or some kind of financial windfall or even a, a diagnosis, and you've just said, if, if, if only that would happen, if only this could come true in my life, then everything would be okay. And your hopes have been dashed. And there's a prayer of Jesus I want to invite you to pray. And it's this. Not my will, but your will be done. Because however hard things might seem right now, he's got you. And what we want to be able to do as brothers and sisters is come alongside you and affirm the blessing of God upon you, despite your frustrations and despite your poverty. In the words of St. John of Bon Jovi, take my hand and we'll make it, I swear. Woe, oh, living on a prayer. Let's stand and pray. <laughs> Father, in the, uh, in the presence of your Holy Spirit and as we stand among brothers and sisters adopted into your family, we ask for a tangible sense of your blessing upon our lives. That we might know your promise is true and that you, O oh God, are faithful. And that whatever our situations look like, whatever they suggest to us in terms of uh, your approval or blessing on our lives, we just grab hold of that faithfulness and receive the blessing that you have for us today. And for those of us who have sought comfort and pinned our hopes on things that have assuaged our um, our difficulties and made us feel better. Lord, I pray that you give us a sense of uh, their impermanence next to your eternal goodness. <laughs>